Mark chapter 2 in your Bibles this morning, Mark chapter 2. Thank you, Brianna and Sydney. All our young people, sixth grade and down, going to finish the donuts. Mark chapter 2 in your Bibles. I want to preach a message this morning entitled, The Faith of Five. The Faith of Five. We'll see where that title comes from here in just a moment, but I want to start with a word of prayer and then a few introductory remarks, and then we will read our text of Scripture. So would you join me in prayer? Father, help us as we look into your word this morning. I'm thankful that in your word and in the Spirit of God who indwells those of us who know Christ as Savior, that we've been given all things that pertain unto life and godliness. I pray that you would strengthen our hearts, encourage our hearts, Lord, in our faith, and in particular as it relates to the faith that is needed on our part to see others around us who do not know Christ as Savior brought to him. So, Lord, would you strengthen us? I pray that you'd challenge us. I pray that you would stoke the joy of our heart that is your joy that you've given to us. Lord, that you would use today's message to make an indelible impression on everyone that is here and those that are listening live stream, those that may watch this sermon or listen to it at some point in the future. I ask you to use it uh, ongoing in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the greatest joys of our Christian lives is getting to be involved in the work of helping bring people to Jesus. John chapter number 4, keep your hand in Mark and look at John chapter 4 and verse number 35. John chapter 4 and verse number 35, you remember the context is the Lord Jesus Christ, weary with his journey, sitting down at the well of Sychar outside of Samaria while the disciples go into the city to get bread. And then while he's there, the woman at the well comes to talk to him. Jesus begins to witness of himself to her. Uh, Before it's over with, she will trust him as her savior. The disciples come back, verse number 35 of John 4. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. It's believed by some Bible scholars that when Jesus said this, the the woman at the well with the crowd of people that she had gathered in the city were at that moment coming back to the well to meet Jesus. The Samaritans at that time characteristically wore white garments, light-colored garments, and it was something of a trademark. And Jesus says, look, the harvest is white. Here comes the harvest. Now, you don't have to wait four months. There are people that need Jesus right now. Okay. Verse number 36, and this is the encouraging thought for us today. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, the, the joy of being used to the Lord to bring someone to Christ to reap that harvest and gathereth fruit unto life eternal that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. You know, a lot of times the person that gets the attention is the one that actually won the soul to Christ. But there's a lot of seed that was sown leading up to that. And Jesus said that the reaper and the sower both get the same reward. Okay. Verse number 37. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. Of course, verse number 36, they get to rejoice together. But notice verse number 38. Jesus said, I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. And other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. There's just nothing quite as exciting as being able to be involved in bringing people to Jesus. I was thinking back over my own life and the privilege that I've had to experience that very thing. Uh, Mrs. Hatcher, I was thinking again today and yesterday about the phone call from your husband about Jerry, the relative of ladies in the church down there in Charleston, And asking me to go visit Jerry. Jerry was dying of cancer just a few days. I didn't realize it. But to see Jerry trust Christ as Savior. But the work had already been done. Others had already been praying. To see Jerry and his girlfriend trust Christ as Savior. I was uh, thinking as well when September when we were out with my dad at his church. 
Uh, I was reminded of uh, a boy that I got to lead to Christ in Bible school years ago who God called him to preach after he got saved and he's pastor in a church, and I didn't even remember any of that. Uh, I was thinking when I was on staff at the church over in Shelby uh, preaching one Sunday, uh, I was the assistant pastor there, and a man responded to the invitation, and when we found out how or asked how he found out about our church, he had just gotten discharged from the Shelby Hospital because he had tried to take his own life. And he got out of the hospital, and the first thing he wanted to do was go to Chick-fil-A. He goes to Chick-fil-A, and a man from our church was there, handed him a gospel tract and invited him to church, did the sewing, and that man came to church and trusted Christ as Savior. I thought about several years ago, having the privilege, actually I say several, it was uh, 20 years ago now, having the privilege to preach on an Apache Indian reservation in uh, Arizona. And before I got there, the pastor had already led the man who was the jailer of the jail on the reservation, led that man to Christ. But in the subsequent 10-day meeting that we had, that man's whole family got saved. And I thought, man, that's just like Acts 16, isn't it? You know, you think about the Philippian jailer. Listen, folks, there's just nothing quite like being used to the Lord to help bring people to Jesus. Okay. Now, that being said, I want you to notice Mark chapter number 2. And again, that's a key word, again, he, speaking of Jesus, entered into Capernaum after some days. And it was noise that he was in the house. Let me just mention this about Capernaum. Grace and I, when we had the privilege to go to Israel last May, uh, got to spend several hours in the ruins of Capernaum. And it was Jesus' headquarters right on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Peter's house was there and there was a significant amount of the gospel record that took place in Capernaum. It was a key city. It was a fishing city okay, on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. If you look in a map in the back of your Bible, you can see the location of Capernaum. So Jesus was in and out of Capernaum on a regular basis, taught in the synagogue a number of times, performed a lot of miracles in the city of Capernaum. Verse number 2. And straightway, when it was noise that he was in the house... And straightway, and some believe it may have been Peter's house that he was actually in. That'll kind of add some human interest to this. And straightway, many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. Let me just tell you this. It's not Jesus' physical miracles that are the greatest impact. It's the word that he preaches and the word that we preach. He preached the word unto them. That's the solution. Verse number three. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy. The word that's translated palsy here is literally paralytic. This man's paralyzed. Which was born or carried of four. So here's the man who needs to be healed. Here are his four friends who are carrying him. And when they could not come nigh unto him, verse number four, when they could not come nigh unto him for the press. This is not ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, or Fox News, any of those. The word press here is the same word that in other places in the New Testament is translated multitude or crowd. And so here's the press, the crowd gathered around. Nobody can get in. Here come these four men carrying their friend who needs to see Jesus to be healed. Verse number four, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they couldn't get in, they went up top. And I can imagine Peter thinking, what is this going to cost me on my Lowe's account? As they start to break up the roof to let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now there's a lot right there in just that verse. But notice verse number 6. We'll come back to 5 in just a moment. But there were certain of the scribes, the religious leaders, sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies, evil against God? Who can forgive sins but God only? Great question, guys. Only God can forgive sins. And so a logical conclusion is being made here. This one Jesus of Nazareth who just forgave this man's sins, that is a clear testimony. He is God. Okay. 
Verse number 8, And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Here's another testimony of his deity. He told them what they were thinking. Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up thy bed and walk? Uh, the logic of Jesus here is this, is whether it's the miracle of physical healing, healing this man who's been paralyzed, or the forgiveness of sins, it takes divine power to do both. Amen. Okay. Right. Verse number 9, or verse number 10, pardon me. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose and took up the bed and went forth uh, before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. They had never seen anything like that before. Can I tell you that the Lord Jesus still desires to find faith that he can work through to do things people have not seen before? That amazes people. So go back to verse number five. When Jesus saw, what's the next word? Say it, say it again. When Jesus saw, singular or plural pronoun? Plural. Not the faith alone of the man who needed healed and his sins forgiven, but when he saw their faith. Who? The four friends that brought this man to Jesus. When Jesus saw the faith of the five, he was moved to action. What a tremendous pronoun it is. And so I say 2,000 years after Jesus performed this miracle, the greater miracle of forgiving this man of his sins, making him a new creature... And then the lesser miracle of healing him of his paralysis. May I say this morning that Jesus is still looking for faith like this to impact society. Faith in his compassion. Faith in his ability to transform lives. First of all, I see about this faith. This is faith. The faith of these five is faith that is unintimidated by the callousness and the complacency of the times and of the territory. Faith that is unintimidated by the callousness, the hardness, and the complacency, the I don't care, or I've seen that before, that characterize not only that time, but in many ways characterizes our time and territory. You say, Pastor, where do you get that? Notice verse number one of chapter two. And again, he entered. Look at chapter two and verse number 13. And he went forth, what's the word? Again. By the seaside. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 1. And he entered again into the synagogue. This is still Capernaum. And the seaside is the seaside on the outskirts of Capernaum. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 20. And the multitude cometh together again. Look at chapter 4 and verse number 1. All of this still around Capernaum. Chapter 4 and verse number 1. And he began Again, to teach by the seaside. And there gathered unto him a great multitude. And then look at chapter number 5 and verse number 21. And when Jesus was passed over, again, by the ship to the other side, much people gathered. All of these agains, six of them, by my count, six of them are testifying to the fact that Jesus was repeatedly in and out of Capernaum doing miracle after miracle, teaching upon teaching, upon teaching, communicating who he was and seeking to bring people to faith in God. A half a dozen times circling back to Capernaum and yet we find that for all the light of Jesus Christ that shined in the streets of Capernaum, Capernaum was calloused. And yet it didn't stop the faith of these five. Regardless of the callousness about them. As a matter of fact, you want to think about how hard Capernaum had become. Keep your hand here, Mark, and go to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 and verse number 20. Matthew chapter 11 and verse number 20. This is a profound passage of scripture here. Verse number 20, Matthew 11. Then began he, talking about Christ, to upbraid, to rebuke, to confront the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done. Because they repented not. 
more than any other cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, Jesus had manifested more works than in other places with the goal of seeking to get people to repent and come to him. Verse number 21, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities, not in Israel, no relationship to God, not dwelt in by the people of God. And yet Jesus said, what little light they had, if they would have had the light that you've had, they would have repented a long time ago. Notice verse number 23. And thou, Capernaum, this is Jesus' base of operations. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, understood here because of what they've experienced, what they've received, you're exalted to heaven. You'll be brought down to where? For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in where? Do you remember the story of Sodom? If the mighty works that had been done in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, notice what Jesus said, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. It is a natural human reaction when it comes to God's people exercising faith It's a natural human reaction for us to be intimidated by the callousness of society, by the complacency of society. Even in America, where we've been glutted with the materialism, our country is generally calloused and complacent in so many ways. Would you agree with me on that? And yet I want us to understand this morning that the faith that Jesus is looking for, the faith that he can work through to have a profound impact is a faith that says, you know what, we're not going to be intimidated by the callousness of the times and society around us or the complacency of the times. We are going to trust God to see him still do an amazing work. I've written this in my notes. Capernaum was the Bible belt of Jesus' day. These five were unintimidated by the callousness. They believed to see the Lord do something amazing, and he did, the faith of five. But I want you to know the faith of five, secondly, was unintimidated, not only by the complacency and the callousness of the day, but the faith of these five men was unintimidated by the crowd. By the crowd. Here's the press, Mark chapter number 2, the multitude that gathers together. Forty times in the gospel record, reference is made to the multitude of the crowd, these large masses of people gathering together to see Jesus, to watch Jesus. Forty times, sometimes they're called the crowd, sometimes the press, sometimes the multitude. I was doing some more study early this morning, and one of the definitions for the word multitude or crowd that we see so many times in the Gospels is a casual collection of people. People who are just casually getting together. Let me tell you something. God doesn't work through casual. God works through commitment. And so the faith of these five was unintimidated by the crowd. As you do a study of... Jesus' interactions with the crowd in the Gospels, you'll find that the crowd was always the object of his compassion. He lifted up his eyes, he looked on the multitude and was moved with compassion. They were the object of his compassion. They heard so much of his teaching, and yet in so many cases the crowd, the multitude, were spectators, not participants. As far as we can tell from the scriptures, the multitude never repented in mass. The multitude was fickle from one day to the next. They would criticize and then commend. Many times, as in this instance, the multitude, the crowd got in the way instead of being a part of the solution. They got in the way. The crowd, as you look at them analyzed or described in the gospels, the crowd, the casual collection of people drawn to Jesus in fascination, yet he loved them anyway. The crowd was often characterized by fleshly appetites and an entitlement mentality. 
They wanted to be fed. And when they had been fed one day and Jesus disappeared in the night, you remember they started looking for them the next day. In John chapter 6, he says, the only reason you're looking for me is because you got your bellies filled. And so they were fleshly in their appetites. They had an entitlement mentality. They were fascinated. They wanted to be entertained. They wanted to be sensationalized by watching Jesus do his works. Many times they were curious but not committed. But I want you to understand the faith of these five. The reason Jesus, uh, his attention was caught by it is because the Lord Jesus Christ is looking for those who will step out of the crowd. He is looking for those who will go around the crowd. In this case, if need be, go over the crowd. Okay. And in some cases, even go against the crowd in order to demonstrate faith in Christ. We're told of the narrow way in the scriptures, and our hearts are moved by the stories of men like Daniel and Noah who stood essentially alone in their faith in the Lord. I think about even Jonah Though he's not mentioned in the, he, in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, there was still tremendous faith and if, for no other reason because God still used him after a second chance. Let me just bypass here a bit and say this. You may have failed at some area in your life in following the Lord, but we serve a God of second chances. We serve a God who will come again to Jonah. And he has a plan for a Jonah's life. This is the kind of faith the Lord is looking for in our day and age when there's so much callousness and complacency and when the crowd is more trouble than they are help and getting in the way. I was reading a book this week about many of the stories in Scripture and the author made an interesting point, something I'd never thought of before, which again, that's not saying much. That's fairly frequently something crosses my mind I haven't thought of before. But he made a great point. He said, have you ever noticed that the stories that really get our attention, the stories in Scripture that stir our hearts, the stories in Scripture that motivate us, they did not come out of just living life, everyday, normal status quo. Really good stories include guys getting thrown into lion's dens or fiery furnaces. Really good stories include getting out of a comfort zone. If you're going to see, if I'm going to see the transforming work of God, if we're going to go deep with God, we've got to be willing to move beyond the casual collection of the crowd and be willing to even in some ways in our lives experience discomfort, to see things upended, to see roofs torn open in order to see God so the faith of these five, they were unintimidated by the crowd. The faith of these five, they were unintimidated by the callousness and the complacency of the times and the territory. Thirdly, the kind of faith that caught Jesus' attention here, verse number five, when Jesus saw their faith, number three, is a faith that is unintimidated by criticism. Unintimidated by criticism. How many of you are aware that our world is full of people who can be critical? How many of you would say, uh, every once in a while, it's me too, Pastor? Okay, get critical. But the faith that catches the eye of Jesus, when Jesus saw their faith, it was a faith that was unintimidated by criticism. Here were these scribes, verse number six, sitting there and reasoning in their hearts and asking these questions. The word reasoning that is used three times in this passage uh, translates from our word dialogue. They were dialoguing in their heart. Let me tell you something. Anytime you seek for solutions in the dialogue of your heart, you're always going to come up short. Your dialogue better be with this book and the God of this book if we're going to get real answers. Many times criticism results from a dialogue with self, a dialogue with situations rather than a dialogue with the Lord. And faith that God can use to transform society is a faith that is unintimidated by criticism. Here sit these scribes criticizing. Notice they're right up front in the front row seats. This is one time it's good not to be in the front row. I'm teasing you, Mark. These guys were in the way. They had gotten there early with a wicked motive to try and find fault with Jesus. 
They got the front row seats all right, and they were in the way, so much in the way that those men had to bring their friend overhead and tear up the roof in order to lower him down into the presence of Jesus. But there they sat, and the four plus the one, these five in their faith, had to go overhead to the roof. Here sit these scribes scrutinizing, dialoguing, looking for justification to condemn Jesus, to discredit Jesus. They were fault finders sitting there with the scowl and their critical spirit. Someone sent me a quote this week, and it's so good. It's about joy in Christianity, joy as our birthright as Christians. Let me repeat that. Joy, the joy of the Lord, deep and abiding joy, is your birthright as a child of God. Okay. And I can say this, we can say this too, where there is joylessness, either the Spirit of God is grieved with something in your life, or where there's joylessness, many times it may be an indication a person's not even a child of God. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Jesus told the disciples in the upper room discourse that one of the things he was leaving to them was his joy. Listen to this quote from a man named Octavius Winslow. The religion of Christ is the religion of joy. We could just stop right there, couldn't we? Now listen, I know it's gloom and glummy outside. I know it's raining. But there's a sun on the other side of the clouds. Okay. And with the clouds of circumstances in this life, I want you to know that the light of Jesus Christ shines on the other side of those circumstances. Okay. The religion of Christ is the religion of joy. Christ came to take away our sins, to roll off our curse, to unbind our chains, to open our prison house, to cancel our debt, in a word, to give us the oil of joy for the morning. For our mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Is this not joy? Where can we find joy so real, so deep, so pure, so lasting? There is every element of joy, deep, ecstatic, satisfying, sanctifying joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The believer in Jesus is essentially a happy man. The child of God is, from necessity, a joyful man. His sins are forgiven, his soul is justified, his person is adopted, his trials are blessings, his conflicts are victories, his death is immortality, his future in heaven is a heaven of inconceivable, unthought of, untold, and endless blessedness. With such a God, such a Savior, and such a hope, is he not, ought he not, to be a joyful man? one of the blessings as we look at these men and their example is that they were unintimidated by criticism. And Jesus saw that faith. But I want you to notice fourthly and finally, the faith that caught the attention of Christ, the faith of these five, this man who needed to meet Christ and these four friends that bought, brought him, their faith, number four, was unintimidated by the complexity of this man's situation. He was paralyzed physically, and he was guilty of sin spiritually. Separated from God, under the wrath of God because of the guilt of his sin. There is a difficulty to the whole scenario. How many of you have noticed in Scripture that there are very few stories of people coming to Jesus or people using, being used by God? Very few of those stories are neat and tidy. Very few. In fact, maybe there's one word we could use to describe many of the stories of people coming to Jesus, and that is messy. By the way, if we're all honest, we all would look in a spiritual mirror and say all of our lives were a mess before we met Jesus. Okay. Because of sin, because of the consequences of sin, without him, I could do nothing. Without him, I'd surely fail. Without him, life would be listless. It would be hopeless. But with Jesus, thank God, I'm saved. Okay. This was a messy situation. I read a quote several years ago. A pastor was talking to a man, and the man found out he was a pastor and said, oh, you're the guy that solves everybody's problems. The pastor snickered and scratched his head and laughed. He said, no, I'm not. He said, I can't solve anybody's problems. He said, my job is to get you to the one who can. 
This was a complex situation, and yet the faith of these five was such that they were unintimidated by the complexity. If we can just get him to Jesus, if we can just get him to Jesus. I can imagine the whole scenario play out of my head. They get there, the crowd is just jammed up the works. They're like, what do we do? And one of the guys bumps and says, listen, maybe we can take the steps up and around. Yeah, but the roof, what do we got? We'll just tear it up. Well, who owns the house? I don't know. We'll answer that question later. Let's just get up there. And so up the steps they go around to that flat roof and they begin to pull back the tiles and the mud and the, the flax and all that the Mideastern roofs were made of in those days. Can you imagine? Jesus knows exactly what's taking place. He's down there, just keeps on teaching, and pretty soon little flecks of dust start to fall from overhead. Pretty soon, the hole begins to open up, and you can imagine as handfuls of it are pulled back, and the hole gets bigger and bigger. And if this is Peter's house, he's probably standing off over to the side saying, what in the world? Making sure his Lowe's LAR account's paid up because he's going to have to fix this one. Unintimidated by the complexity, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Religious people, now get this, of Jesus' day, had created a very neat and tidy system of what we call today churchianity. Church people. Now, I am one. Most of you are one. These guys had created a very neat and tidy system that was generations deep. Now get this, that was intimidating to the everyday person. It was unapproachable. It was impossible to get to God through the Pharisees, the most religious people of the day. In fact, as you well know, their religion was a hypocritical act. One of the things that will surprise you about Jesus, I recently read a book with a similar title to this, is the place that Jesus makes for outsiders on the inside. Amen. One of the sub-themes of the Gospel of Luke, next time you read the Gospel of Luke, I want you to just take a highlighter, and don't let this make you uncomfortable. We want to be like Jesus, don't we? Okay. Take a highlighter, and I want you to highlight every account in the book of Luke where outsiders got in and insiders left. Because the righteous, the insiders, didn't think they needed the great physician, Jesus Christ. But you didn't have any trouble convincing an outsider that he needed the great physician, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you look and it's the sinners that came to Jesus. It's the tax collectors that came to Jesus, and there are a bunch that still need to come to Jesus. It was the zealots, the anarchal extremists on one end. Soldiers, in particular Roman soldiers, were hated and despised. We find soldiers, centurions coming to Jesus, officers in the military. You find harlots coming to Jesus. The diseased of the day who would never have been welcomed in Jerusalem coming to Jesus. The those who were demon-possessed, Gentiles, Samaritans. And as if it was a final exclamation point on Jesus' heart for the outsider, on his cross, he said to a thief being executed for his crime, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Exclamation point. You study Jesus' disciples, the only insider, that is, the one who was from the province of Judea and from the city of Jerusalem, the only one who was on the inside as far as the religious elite of Jesus' day were concerned, the only one who was the insider, guess what his name was? Judas Iscariot. All the others were those despised outsider Galileans. Matthew 21, verses 31 and 32. Look at it. It's just a few pages back to your left in your Bible. Matthew 21. Verse 30. Notice verse 28. Let's just back up. 
But what think ye? Jesus is speaking again. A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. Now, we won't open a discussion here about what any of us dads would do if we said to our son, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And son said, Nope, not doing it. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came, the man came to the second and said, Likewise, son, go work in my vineyard today, understood. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. So you got the first son said, I'm not going. And then he repented and went. You got the second son who said, Yeah, dad, I'll go. And then he never went. Verse 31, Whether of them twain or two did the will of his father... They say unto him the first, Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto you that publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and sinners, or pardon me, the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe. And so the, the first son that said, No, I'm not going, but then repented and went is the one that Jesus parallels to the publicans and the harlots, the tax collectors and the harlots, the despised of the society, the sinners of society. Those are the ones that in their first choice in life, they messed things up. But then they recognized their sin and they repented and they came to Christ. And Jesus told the religious people of his day, the publicans and the harlots will be in the kingdom of God before you are. To the religious. Messes. As big as they are, aren't you glad you can bring them to Jesus? (laughs) He's the great physician. He's the one as the good shepherd who's the master at finding the lost sheep. He's the one who the 90 and 9 who think they need no repentance, Jesus will leave behind and he will go after one lost sheep on the mountains wild and bare. He's the great physician who is pictured in the heart of the father who daily stands on the porch waiting for the son to return from the far country. He's the great physician who will heal sinners who recognize their need of repentance. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this with great encouragement in my heart because I know Crossroads Baptist Church and I love this church, but we need to be reminded every once in a while how easy it is to become callous and complacent to the needs of others around us. And here's the statement. A church needs to evaluate its atmosphere if the kind of people that Jesus drew aren't welcome in the doors of our church. Now listen, Jesus never left the sinner in their sin when they came. He would heal them, he would transform, and then he would say, go and sin no more. But there's something amazing about that Nazarene that was played in the hymn a little bit ago, Jesus the Nazarene, and that is this, that sinners were understanding of the fact they could come to Jesus. He was approachable. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to be approachable. Many of the churches several hundred years ago would paint the front door of the church, guess what color? Red. You know why? The blood of Jesus. And anybody who comes in those doors, it almost makes me, don't be surprised if you come next week and the front doors are red, painted over the glass. Because the blood of Jesus cleanses away all sin, makes the vilest sinner clean, the Bible. Something else strikes me, and I'm moving towards a conclusion. We've we got a few more minutes here. Don't look back like Lot's wife. Okay. <laughs> Notice verse number five. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be... Wait, 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 not in Jesus' plan. What's the point of physical healing if there's not spiritual healing? And Jesus is about to prove that he knows a man's heart. He knows the need. He's about to tell these scribes what they're thinking. And I love this about Jesus. He immediately speaks to this man's greater need. 
thy sins be forgiven thee. The word forgiven, the tense of it is forgiven once and for all. (laughs) Aren't you glad you come to Jesus as a sinner when you did whenever it was? You came in faith. Lord, I can't save myself. Here's this sin. Here's this mess. And you're the only one who can solve it. You're the only one who can wash away sin. It was your payment on a cross that paid my sin debt, that exchanged with my sin the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that I can have access to heaven. Aren't you glad you don't have to do that every day? Jesus paid it all. He did it in one final payment on that cross 2,000 years ago. And because of that... The forgiveness that he gives to those that trust him is a once and for all forgiveness when it comes to a person's salvation. The word forgiveness here means to be released from. It means to be separated from. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. They are separated from you as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. It means to banish. It means we're not bringing that up again. You know, when you look at Bible dictionaries for some of these words, some of these definitions are amazing. This one got me. This is literally a definition of forgiveness in a lexicon. Don't bring it up again. When Jesus forgives you of your sin, he doesn't bring it up again. As one preacher said years ago, he buries it in the deepest sea and puts a no fishing sign there. I want to show you one final thing before we conclude that was a startling realization to me. Jesus said to the man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And then these scribes begin to question who can forgive sins but God only. Jesus perceived in his spirit, verse number 8, what they were thinking. He asks them the question in verse number 9, Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise, take up thy bed and walk, understood answer, it's the same. It takes divine power. But then notice verse number 10. Who's he in conversation with? Who's he in dialogue with? He's not in dialogue with the man that came for healing whose sin he's just forgiven. He's in dialogue with the scribes. And notice what he says to these unbelieving, hard-hearted scribes. But that... Ye may know. Who's he talking to? He's not talking to the man who's still laying paralyzed on a mat but has just had his sins forgiven. He's talking to the scribes and he says to those scribes, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, take up your bed and walk. Now, here's an implication. I want you to get this. Even though that man was yet to be physically healed, his greatest need had already been met. If Jesus would have left him physically unhealed, he was eternally better off than he had ever been. Now, I'm glad Jesus did heal him, but it's fascinating. The primary focus for why Jesus healed this man is to give a sign to prove to these unbelieving scribes that Jesus is God. What would have been the point if he'd have been physically healed but not saved from the guilt of his sin in the end? The real work, the most important work, had already been done. A sinner had been forgiven by his faith in Christ. I read a story several weeks ago, and then I'm going to conclude. This message on the faith of five. Faith that was unintimidated by the complacency and the callousness of the time. Faith unintimidated by the crowd. Faith unintimidated by criticism and by the complexity of the situation. Jesus solved the problem, forgave the man. I read a story several weeks ago of a father and a son that had a falling out. And the son had sinned badly against the father and it had strained their relationship. The father had gotten upset and the son, in embarrassment, ran away. This was in Madrid, Spain years ago that this story is said to have happened. The father took out an article in the main newspaper of Madrid, Spain 
and he addressed his son, Paco. And he said, Paco, all is forgiven. I love you. Please meet me in front of the Madrid Times newspaper office next week, next Monday or Tuesday at one in the afternoon. As the story goes, when the man showed up to meet his son Paco, there were 800 other Pacos waiting there. You know what that shows? The longing of the human heart for divine forgiveness that only Jesus can give. And let us, like these in this passage, demonstrate faith, the faith of these five, not one but the faith of these five. Now, here's a, I've never closed a message this way before. This week, the Lord allowed me to see a real-time illustration of the faith of five. John, how many months ago was it you started this Bible study? Less two months, a month and a half, two months. God burdened John Hopkins' heart about starting a Bible study with some of his buddies. They're all here today. Landon, Keaton, Andrew, and Noah. They started this Bible study Tuesdays nights, Thursday night, whichever night works out. These guys are all fishermen. They love to fish. One of the things that binds them together. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Right? As they got to talking, they all came to the conclusion, including Noah, that Noah had not trusted Christ as Savior. So they began praying for Noah to get saved. Beverly was letting them use her lake house for the Bible study. When was the last time you saw five 19-year-old guys on their own decide, we're going to have a Bible study? You guys all 19, close around there? Close, close enough, okay. A couple weeks ago, they invited me to come, and I'm telling you what, it just humbled me. To see the young men, their desire to just know God, to seek God, and to hear them pray for Noah not being sure of his salvation. With Noah there. That blew my mind, Noah. When I was sitting there two weeks ago and John just said, God, you know Noah's struggling with his salvation. He needs to be saved. And last, this past Thursday night, we began the meeting and explained the gospel and Noah trusted Christ as Savior. Noah got on the ark of salvation. And because four buddies got burdened about bringing a friend to Jesus. I left that Bible study Thursday night and I thought, this is Mark 2 all over again. As part of their Bible study time, they sing and they do pretty good. I was amazed. We had to sing Thursday night without a piano because Becky had fixed supper and then left. Uh, But uh, she plays for them normally. And so this is what I mean. I've never closed a service this way. These guys know we're going to do this. They, we all sang together, How Great Thou Art. And it was neat because they only had one hymn book, and you should have seen them all pile onto one couch and sing How Great Thou Art. And I was just sitting there thinking, this is amazing. My heart's being challenged about the faith of these guys, the faith of the four to pray and to witness, and the faith of Noah to get on the ark of salvation. And so we're going to close this service by singing for you, How Great Thou Art. Come on, guys. Judson, come and join us, too. It's hymn number 22 in your hymn book. We're going to sing verse number one together. Uh, Audrey, can you come play for us? We're just going to stand. Now, you notice that three of these guys, four of these guys, are much taller than I am. Okay? So, guys, just let's gather in a half circle here right behind me. Come on. We're going to sing the first verse for you, and then I want you to join us in the last verse, and then we'll finish, okay? All right, so it's hymn number 22. Get it and follow along. Uh, This is the song of a soul set free. How great thou art, how great thou art. You guys ready? Oh, Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder. Scoot this way.
They're probably mortified to even be up here. I don't know. Matter of fact, it was actually Landon's idea after we sang it Thursday night. Landon said, maybe we can sing this at a church sometime. And right there. So it's their idea. Okay, so if any of you other guys were mortified, it's Landon's fault. Okay, all right. Uh, hey, that's the song of the soul set free. Amen. Join me in standing if you would. Listen, if you're here and you don't know Christ as Savior, Christ receiveth sinful men and women and children too. Okay. If you need to be saved, don't leave today before you come to me. Come to one of our folks. Let us take God's word and show you how you can get on the ark of the salvation of Jesus Christ, just like Noah. Father, thank you for what we've seen today. Thank you for these guys. And Lord, I pray that you'd put a hedge of protection on these five men, that you'd use their lives in ways that they can't even now begin to imagine. And I pray that as much as they love to fish for fish in a pond, I pray that you'd put on each of their hearts a growing burden, just like they've already testified that's there. I pray that you'd make them fishers of men. And that as you see their faith and our faith, that you'd be pleased to work through us, not be intimidated by the complexity of people's problems, not be intimidated by the callousness or the crowd, or the criticism of others. But that we would move forward in faith, following you, and being used of you to see you do a great and a mighty work. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.